Hello there, you're listening to episode 10 of Miradas, a podcast on current affairs and culture in Latin America. I'm Laurie Blair, and this week we have Andres Partiera, a historian of Cuba and a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We spoke in late April about Cuba's medical missions abroad, uh, which we've seen deployed recently to Italy, China and beyond, uh, the state of healthcare on the island, the history of US-Cuba relations and the impact of sanctions on Cuba and its regime. Um, as someone who studied at the University of Havana and is learning Russian as part of his doctorate on Cuban foreign policy, uh, Andres is obviously massively clued up and had some really sharp insights. I learned a lot, hope you do too, uh, and stay tuned to hear from John at the end. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm joined down the line uh, from Madison, Wisconsin, by Andres Pertiera, uh, who is a historian of Cuba uh, and Latin America. Andres, obviously we've, we're in the middle of this kind of extraordinary global pandemic right now. Um, I don't want to dwell uh, too, too much on that. What I'm interested in to hear from you is, is your take as a historian of, of, of Cuba, um, and particularly 20th, 20th century uh, Cuba. Now, we've seen um, Cuban doctors being among the first uh, international responders in, in China, in Wuhan. Um, we've seen, I think in March alone, Cuba had its medical personnel in, in 16 different countries. Um, uh, the island also rescued the passengers of a, of a cruise ship, the Braemar, um, which saw the British ambassador kind of thank those doctors who then had to self-isolate for two, for two weeks. Um, and of course, the backdrop to this, as as you, as you know, is is Cuba's kind of famous, um, notorious to some uh, medical program, which um, I think I'm right in saying has seen about thirty seven thousand doctors deployed uh, in seventy seven countries around the world in 2015, uh, with obviously some returning since then um, as well. I kind of wonder if you could just give us a, some a backdrop on on these medical missions. Um, where's where 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 have these kind of medical brigades come from, uh, and 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 you know why is Cuba exporting doctors uh, all around the world? Uh, sure. Hi. First, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah. The the medical um, brigade programs uh, are actually really old. A lot of uh, more recently, a lot of people associated with um, Cuba's relationship with Venezuela since nineteen ninety eight since very famously the Doctors for Oil program there was really fundamental, not just a major program in terms of the number of medical personnel sent, but also a major uh, factor in Cuba's economic recovery from the worst of the special period of the 1990s when Cuba's economy largely collapses due to the disappearance of its trade with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. Mm. Um, but actually, the program dates to, in some in, in some form, to the 1960s. It had um, relationship a relationship with uh, newly independent Algeria, and was sending medical personnel there. And Algeria was sending oil. Um, so it's it's definitely a fairly um, it's definitely a fairly uh, old 
program, uh, though of course uh, it's it's increased in um, in its scope and its economic importance for Cuba in in recent decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Cuba get uh, got I believe in twenty eighteen about six point three billion with a B in revenue, uh, which is about approximately six percent of its GDP okay. from uh, these doctors abroad. So it's a fairly significant, um, not just political project, but economic project for the government. Uh, so it's it's a kind of a marriage of um, both pragmatic necessity, uh, economic necessity for the government, and uh, and a, a a nice little uh, mix with its own. It mixes very well with its own ideology. I guess something um, analogous to it would be the for for. Uh, people familiar with the U.S. who are listening, I guess kind of like the Peace Corps, mm. in the sense that, you know, it's, it is, it jives with the uh, ideology of the government, and, it, and it's good diplomacy, but at the same time, it does serve, like, a more practical purpose. I mean, uh, and so, uh, though, of course, uh, with the increased importance of it as a, a source of revenue for the government, um, especially since the sugar uh, industry is basically no more since the two thousands, especially it was largely dismantled. Um, it, basically, this creates a new these new it it has taken on a new dimension, not just in terms of scale, but as it's grown in economic importance. Um, it, it's changing function also creates new incentives to really pressure doctors uh, to go abroad even if they don't necessarily want to, because this is a huge commitment. It's several years. Um, travel home is sporadic. Mm. Um, you can't bring your family, uh, which is really huge. I mean, you know, you're, you're especially like imagine you have a small child or imagine if you were planning to have a child in the near future, you know, or even if your kid's, you know, five or six, but, you know, you're missing a couple of, of key years of their lives. So it's so the program is old, but it, there's been a qualitative change—not just quantitative, but qualitative change—in its in its function over the past twenty, thirty years or so. In, in the sense that it's become more more economically kind of crucial. I mean, you you mentioned there the, the you know that huge figure six point two six point three billion. I mean, that's that's the country's biggest export, right? You know, it's it's above tourism. It's about half of the country's foreign earnings that's 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 a huge it's a huge kind of uh industry i mean i, I wonder you know when, when you were you, you obviously uh, took your um your bachelor's degree your ba at, at the university of, of havana you would have been rubbing shoulders there i imagine with with future um doctors fu- doctors who were, who were due to be posted abroad you know what what was what were kind of people saying about that about the program were they kind of happy to be part of this or were they saying well, well hang on a minute this is a bad deal i mean about two-thirds of my income is going to stay with the government and and as you said I've, i'm going to miss missing my girlfriend or my kids for a couple of years well when i went um well there there's actually a an important difference between when i went and now which is that when i went doctor salaries were even worse than they than they are now uh, they're not great right now, but uh, I think that they're cl- earning closer to fifty to sixty dollars a month, okay. uh, which is abysmal. But um, it's something closer to, closer to a very basic minimum wage 
to survive in Cuba. Um, back when I went, they were earning about half that. Um, so it was almost a symbolic wage. Mm. So um, the, these trips abroad, I mean, like the, the Cuban doctors admittedly, like, don't get paid a lot when they're abroad. However, um, it was still significantly more than they were being paid at home. So what the doctors that I met would do is, well, I mean, they wouldn't always be happy about, like, not earning a lot and having to be abroad, but they would be like, hey, I can save up during my time abroad. I can live on half of what they're giving me uh, and just be really, really um, uh, tight-fisted while I'm there. Sure. And I can bring that home and I can, you know, redo the deck. I can invest in this. I can invest in that. Maybe I can save up enough. For, to buy a car back in Cuba and then live off of my car in Cuba, you know, do informal taxi work, that kind of thing, okay. uh, to make ends meet. So, I mean, that so it, it was a double-edged sword even then, or not a double-edged sword, but you, you get what I'm saying. It was a, it was a mixed bag. Yeah, and and, um, and and I suppose also that you know, defenders of of the scheme will say, well, if you're a Cuban medical student, you get your medicine degree paid for by the state right so you you have this this qualification for free I, i'm not sure how transferable it is uh abroad but i imagine it, in the global south at least you know uh that that gives you a degree of possibility assuming you you you, you can leave the island well for sure i mean like um Becoming a doctor in Cuba is a bit different from becoming a doctor in, say, like the U.S. Or I, I don't, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with how it works in the U.K. But you're closer to a civil servant mm. going to different postings than you are a, a freelance doctor uh, of any kind. Um, like the, the, you're, you're a civil servant at a post. You're attending. To, you're giving a basic service, the same as a policeman um, or something similar. Okay. So. Um, so Cuban doctors go into the degree knowing that, knowing that um, uh, a good portion of their careers will be dependent on working within the bureaucracy, trying to find a good posting, that kind of thing. So there's a different there's a different mentality to it. Um, but um, I mean, you do you do get the degree for free, but like all degrees are free in Cuba. Sure. So it's it's just kind of it, it kind of goes without saying, and I mean like. I mean, it's, they're not 100% free even for other degrees because you do have something called Servicio Social, social Service. I, I believe that Germany has something vaguely similar. Okay. Um, which is for two years after the degree, or only one year if you're a man and had already did um, military service, um, what you would do is you would work for a pretty low wage at some job um, related, theoretically related to your discipline. And... Um, but of social need. Okay. And so basically a crap job that no one else wants, but the, the like society would benefit from you working. So, um, so it's, it's kind of already built into all degrees. Uh, but yeah, you would, you would, as part of, um, doctors definitely have that additional pressure. And it, interestingly enough, like actually had a really interesting exercise that one of our professors told us to do. Um, which was there was a march, the Marcha de las Antorchas, uh, which is um, uh, basically an annual march commemorating 
the uh, shooting of the um, medical, uh, Cuban medical students uh, in the 19th century by the Spanish government, okay. who were falsely accused of uh, destroying Spanish uh, official the tombs of Spanish officials or desecrating them. Okay. Um, and so we were assigned to actually go down and see which disciplines were well represented because it's voluntary to go to the march. Um, which disciplines were well represented at the march? Um, his humanities weren't actually that well represented. Uh, history wasn't well represented. Sociology tended to go a bit more. Um, but doctors and scientists were fairly well represented. I mean, it makes sense because it's commemorating the shooting of the medical students, but mm. like it's a voluntary event. There was much more like we would ask and they would, they were medical students did tend to be a bit more as a rule, ideologically committed. That's like, interesting. That, I mean, that's the function of the state in general, you know, trying yeah. to make people ideologically committed, but like the, the medical students and scientists tended to be even more than the, the people going into letters into the humanities were. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And, um, and I, 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 I kind of wanted to um, rewind slightly. Uh, you, you, you mentioned you know, the origins of this program in, in, in the 60s. I kind of just wonder why why Cuba alights on on doctors in particular as, as its kind of, um, you know, arm for, for kind of reaching abroad. Why not train agronomists or, or um, uh, you know, uh, engineers, architects? Is it, a, is it sort of an inheritance of the relatively well-developed um, social um, structures, you know, preceding the Cuban Revolution? Or is it sort of a sort of... Um, I guess a kind of a, a third worldism, a sort of idea that okay, this is a very tangible, um, you know, um, uh, clear way we can help people by improving their their health. You know, what 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 lies behind that 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 decision? Well, I'm not sure how much of it is about what preceded um, 1959 in terms of doctor numbers, because after 1959 many uh, older Cuban doctors, um, just like most professionals, um, left the country, or many professionals left the country, my family included. My grandfather was an accountant, um, and he, uh, yeah, just, you know, um, white uh, professional class uh, Cubans left uh, en masse uh, after 19, between 1959 and 19, the early 1960s. So Cuba definitely had uh, a shortage. I mean, they, they didn't really have a lot of doctors to begin with in terms of treating the needs of the rural population, um, which sure. were the most in need. Many of them had, like, worms in their feet because many kids didn't have shoes and stuff. Um, but uh, there was definitely a shortage in the, in the 1960s. Um, but I think doctors are very symbolically powerful in a way that an agronomist isn't necessarily as much sure. because, you know, unless you're on the farm where the Cuban agronomist is giving you tips, you know, how many, how many people like face to face does an agronomist interact with? Um, I'm not sure, but, but I suspect not but, many. Yeah. Yeah. But a doctor, you know, it's, it's not just, Oh, the, you know, the nice Cuban man, he'll tell me how to plant my potatoes. It's, Oh, the Cuban doctor saved my daughter's life. Oh, the Cuban, Cuban doctor. Um, mm. help me see, you know, these are the kinds of things that, um, stick much more in people's minds, um, because it affects them, uh, far more deeply. Um, so I think, I think that's one part of it. I also think that another part of it is that, um, after 1959, 
Cuba invests a massive amount of capital over decades in, um, in training people. So there has been historically a surplus of trained professionals in all kinds of disciplines um, mm. that really the Cuban government like uh, has trouble monetizing, basically. It's, a, it's an investment, but it's not an investment that necessarily pays off Aside sure. from, well, you got to study what you wanted. Um, but, you know, if you have surplus of doctors, countries abroad need doctors. You gain diplomatically and symbolically, but you also gain money. It makes sense to, you know, there's need and there's and there's the, the resource. Sure. Um, so it does make a lot of sense that doctors are are so prominent i mean cuba does send other kinds of has historically sent other kinds of experts uh abroad it's just that you know I, that that's my my interpretation of it i haven't sure. done an archival deep dive but yeah. that that seems to make the most sense in terms of like how how it's functioned in of, cuban society since 59 of course as, as you say you know it's also sent it's soldiers it's it's spies you know those kinds of people but and I, I also wonder you know, it, it seems with the presence of, of, of Che Guevara, even in those early years and in, in the Sierra Maestra, that medical care was a kind of an important part of, of the package that the revolutionaries were offering. You know, he, he would take the time to prescribe X, Y or Z, you know, whatever he had in his medicine, you know, his medicine bag, um, almost in a sense that the kind of medicine is, is part of the sort of DNA of the revolution. And, and I, I wonder, you know, whether even kind of fancifully, whether that kind of filters through to an extent, at least in the early years, this idea that, you know, healthcare is part of what the revolution is offering and, and, and why, so why not send that abroad? Yeah, for sure. And it's also very much the kind of the philosophy of se da lo que se tiene y no lo que se sobra, which is um, you give what you have and not what you have extra of. Sure. Um, so, so the fact, so, I mean, it, it, in a way, even the fact that there was scarcity of doctors early in the revolution and they were still willing to send doctors abroad, gave it even more symbolic weight, mm. um, mm. because it's not like there was a surplus. It was, these are people who are not attending Cubans because they're, because it, it really solidifies Cuba's bona fides as a, a third world country believing in international, um, third world solidarity. I mean, it also makes sense as part of Cuba's political project in the 1960s and 1970s to get to get on top of the non-aligned movement. Sure. Um, so, you know, because you had all these third world countries, uh, especially decolonizing nations in Africa and Asia, um, that uh, were trying to create a stance where they didn't have to become either a satellite of, of the USSR or of the US, mm. uh, kind of find their own way. And if Cuba's sending doctors abroad, it solidifies Cuba's um, pot potential to lead that. Um, and and the Cuba definitely really did, you know, make, uh, try to position itself. Even though it was it, it had a lot of it wasn't a satellite. It had a lot more um, room to maneuver than many dependencies. But it was a dependency of the USSR, mm -hmm. which undermined its ability to lead a non-aligned movement. But I think that that's also part of it. Okay, well, that, that that's a really interesting kind of um, answer there, and and kind of leads me on to my next question, which is bringing us forward to, to the present moment. Um, obviously, Cuba is is exporting its doctors around the world. We see them in Italy. Uh, there's talk about 
um, even before this crisis hit, there was talk about them uh, being sent to, to work with indigenous communities in Canada. Um, I think they might already be, be in Mexico. Um, you know, is, is all of that, has all of that impacted Cuba's ability to respond to uh, the coronavirus pandemic? You know, what, what's the, I should say, we're recording this in towards the end of, of April, April, April 21st. Um, so things could change. But what's the situation right now with the, with the pandemic on the island and, and how ready is, is Cuba to, to respond to that? Right. Well, as of right now, Cuba has done 20,000, as of right now being as of the last update of April 19th, okay. uh, uh, Cuba has done 20,598 tests. Of them, only 1,087 have come back positive. And um, let's see. And uh, there were 52 new cases on April 19th, just to give you an idea of like how many new cases are coming in on a daily basis at this point, and 36 dead total. Okay. Um, so it's it's not great, but I mean that's it, still it's still largely contained. They've, they've closed their borders, um, so there is no in or out traffic. Um, Maybe there are exceptional cases, but as a rule, you cannot go there as a tourist or for academic reasons right now. Um, they are encouraging people to isolate at home. Um, the school system is shut down. Um, they, they really resisted that for a while. They resisted both closing the borders because they depend on tourism as a key part of their economy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to, um, because they you know, will get back to it, but they import most of their food. So they need that foreign currency. Um but they closed their borders and then they shut down the school system, both basic education and higher education. Um, we'll see if it reopens in the fall, but for right now it's closed. Um, and they are even isolating provinces, not just isolating, like not just pe- having people isolate in their homes, but trying to isolate provinces from each other. So, for example, uh, Gramma, as of yesterday, uh, would being is- the Gramma province, which is in eastern Cuba, mm-hmm. it's one of the breadbaskets of the eastern provinces, and it's is- being isolated from more infected provinces. Not they're not so they're not just isolating um, infected provinces, but non-infected provinces to make sure that the infection doesn't get to provinces where it hasn't really gotten bad yet. Um, and overall, it's fairly contained. Uh, they're also they also benefit from being an island. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's. It's definitely not as bad as it could be, and um, the Cuban government does have the, the the benefit of doctors being basically civil servants. So they, you know, they're mobilized. Mm. They're, they're able to mobilize the doctors as if it was an army. Uh, you know, mobilize it to fight this 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 problem. Cubans are also fairly conscientious about um, health issues. Uh, um, infectious diseases have been uh, a chronic problem in the island. Going back to at least like the colonial period, um, the, the the during the independence wars, uh, the independence fighters like to say that their greatest generals were June, July, and August, because that's when the most Spaniards would die of infectious diseases. Oh, wow. Okay, <laughs> um, we're, we're talking malaria, dengue, etc. Right. Right. So, so you you occasionally have an outbreak of like dengue or malaria. Uh, no, I don't think malaria, but dengue uh, has occasionally had things. Cholera, there's an occasional right. outbreak in Cuba. Um, and they do tend to impose very strict measures to contain it. They okay. historically have been fairly successful. To, so to go back, that's all just to give you an idea of what the response has been. 
But to go back to how has have the doctors abroad like hampered the the Cuban government's response? I'm not sure. I don't I don't think it has, especially since it's um, as you know as troubling as you know the 36 deaths are and the 1,087 cases are thus mm. far. Um, despite all of that, it's still not that bad, and they still it seems like they they contained it in time and they did sure. the quarantine in time. And, so, and, um, and I suppose we are talking about a relatively small number, you know, perhaps a few hundred who have been sent abroad compared to, as far as I understand it, about 28,000 medical students who've, who've back, back on the island have been, who've been going around door to door doing this survey to sort of to help them detect um, well, cases. 18,000 doctors abroad, as far as I understand. Sure. Oh, OK, sure, sure. But um, a, in yeah. total. Right. Um, I mean, they did have a bunch of doctors come back. Uh, from uh, Ecuador, Brazil, especially Brazil. Brazil, they had a huge number of doctors, a couple thousand. Um, uh, Bolivia and El Salvador in the last two years as part of the U.S.'s like pressure to really go after the program because it's a source of revenue. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, it doesn't seem like it's hurt them that bad, and so they do have extra doctors. Um, but also, going back to, you know, you mentioned that they had doctors in like Italy and places like that. Um it's st- the one thing I would like to note there is it's still not entirely clear to me what the conditions of their stay in those countries is, mm. um, because these aren't traditional historic um, doctors for oil or doctors for whatever programs. These, you know, the, the doctors for oil program with Venezuela was built on a very explicit basis of. You know, you'll give me heavily subsidized oil in exchange for medical personnel and some money to pay, to pay for their salaries. Sure. Um, but I'm. But it's not clear to me what the deal is with mm. Italy. If there is even even is a more formal economic deal beyond paying the room and board, like because like the EU, they they've largely won over most of the EU in terms of um, the international political relations kind of scheme. Um, and, and they already and Italy has ma- sorry Spain has major investments in uh, Spanish capitalists have major investments in Cuba especially in the hotel industry so Spain is very much on board with you know Cuba being able to normalize economic relations with the rest of the world but it's not clear to me if Cuba's going for a lot of money or even any money for their doctors mm. uh, like beyond room and board or if it's just you know it, it may just be they're doing really like this is a really good symbolic move let's not worry about the money too much. Well, this will pay political and diplomatic dividends in the long run. I'm not saying it is that. I'm just saying it's not clear to me that it isn't. And there's a lot of pieces going around the press right now that kind of assume that there's a one-to-one parity with how it works in other countries. Sure. And I mean, that's I, not clear to me yet. I, I guess we are in, in quite you know uncharted waters, and, and I wonder whether or not there's a sense that, okay, we're shoring up that goodwill with the, with the EU. I mean, I, I guess we also have to, have to distinguish between the motives of, of the you know, the guys in Havana, the guys in the government, and also the doc- doctors themselves, who I'm sure in many cases are very happy to be to be, to be be doing that work and obviously are skilled at it. But perhaps there's, there's a decision, you know, in the government, well, if we can kind of drive a wedge between the EU and, and the US in terms of their approach towards the island, that helps ease the pressure a little bit. That makes the, the, the kind of the, the sanctions that the tr- the Trump... Trump administration has, has kind of has resumed seem a bit more isolated you know it, it's kind of perhaps helping to, to push uh, European public opinion or EU opinion in in one direction right 
Um, I, I, and, and sort of on on that point, I mean, I, th I think I think those are the, that's in interesting points you make there about the preparedness of of the island. I guess we should, we should also say it's one of the oldest populations in the Americas, um, and you know, so we have some disadvantages there. But uh, but am I right right in saying that in terms of you know child mortality rates, Cuba actually performs better than than the United States. You know, we're looking at perhaps kind of four per a thousand live births in, in, in Cuba. Uh, yeah, no, Cuba does have tend to have better stats on on child mortality than even even the U.S. Um, though th those stats are definitely uh, there's definitely a lot of criticism of it, um, and and it, they're definitely contested stats um, by um, uh, especially like uh, critics abroad. Um, so. So I mean, they are government stats. So like every like every government, take all government stats with a bit of a grain of salt. Mm. Um, however, I don't think that it's uh, it is an exaggeration to say that, especially for a third world country, they way outperform like the low infant mortality that is expected for a third world country. Um, my like j just to give like in a snapshot of like. Uh, how it works on a day-to-day basis. My uh, friend of mine, um, he had a, ba a baby. Oof, God, she's going to be two now. Uh, so two <laughs> years ago, um, she, uh, uh, he had a kid, and uh, his wife got to go to the local um, uh, medical clinic for for, for pregnant women um, that was walking distance from their house. They were able to go there. They had regular check-ins. The doctors told them, told her, here's what you want to avoid eating as a pregnant woman. You know, here's what you should do if you feel this. Let us know. All of this is, of course, absolutely free. Um, and then when the child was born, uh, I think the baby got like a diaper rash or something. But she was really crying, and so uh, my friend and his wife took the baby to the the ER, the the emergency room. Mm. Uh, freaked out because they didn't know what to do, and the doctor just examined the baby, said, "You don't worry. It's like a diaper diaper rash or whatever. You know." Take her home, give her this, you'll be fine. And again, zero dollars, zero cents, mm, like mm. absolutely free. So, um, the the kind of small, easily preventable um, mistakes that a new, like especially new parents might make, not knowing that feeding the baby X or doing X Y with the baby will hurt it. You know, those things tend to be avoided because they have regular access to. Um, doctors who will give them the kind of medical education they need to avoid easy mistakes. Sure. Okay. I mean that that, that that's really in interesting to hear about that kind of level 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 of care. And, and of course the the you know, I I the the the, the, the sort of major criticism of some of these things we've been talking about is like well, it's all very well to provide these kind of these services, but fundamentally if this is a a sort of uh, this is a regime which isn't providing kind of basic freedom you know it, is that a a trade-off you know that that that, that makes sense and and I, I kind of want, want to sort of zoom out a, a, a bit and, and talk about where Cuba was headed before this before the this kind of big pandemic um, you know has, has been hitting the world um, we've seen a, a kind of rolling back of of that initial a thaw which the Obama administration oversaw with with, with Cuba, um, Trump's restored sanctions, which which basically served to scare off foreign companies from doing business with with the island. I kind of wonder where where you see 
the the the, the kind of the the island heading or where what was it headed you know does, does the resumption of of this tougher kind of cold war line from from washington make a a sort of democratic make democratic openings less likely you know how, what's kind of going on there sure so i mean historically um dem- like domestic opening up has been tied to u.s foreign policy not in a one-to-one kind of way but rather just because um, Cuba justifies the restriction of many of its many freedoms under the fact that the country is besieged um, uh, in, in the, the, the economic embargo, um, the, the fact that the U.S. spends millions a year on literal propaganda networks, TV and Radio Martí, um, which last I heard were getting in trouble because they were posting anti-Semitic George Soros conspiracy theories. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, which caused a bit of a scandal. Um, but, yeah, so so there is a massive apparatus to try and overthrow. The, a lot of money being invested in trying to overthrow the Cuban government, so the Cuban government then uses that as kind of, well, you know, we can't be like other countries because our context is different. Um, I mean, it, the public-facing argument isn't that but the private argument is that in like in like if you were getting to get someone in the in a in a behind closed doors that's basically the idea right um you know cuba survived where allende didn't cuba survived where all these other latin american governments that stood up to the u.s got overthrown in military coups or this or that but the cuban system all you want to criticize it all you want survive that is their argument sure and Um, and i guess i guess it you know, its its leaders saw what happened to Jacobo Arbenz in, in Guatemala, and and right. the the sense that democratic socialism in the Americas gets crushed, or indeed any, anywhere around the world. Che Guevara was in Guatemala in '54. He sure. was there for the coup. Yeah. Uh, so we can we can definitely bet that it was a formative moment for him. Um, uh, uh, interestingly enough, um, I was reading a, a book by. Um, Professor Harmer, uh, 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 Allende's Chile is, I think, the name of the book. And ironically enough, in the early 1970s, um, he was, uh, Fidel Castro was telling Allende to actually slow his role on opening up to Cuba and, like, more radical reforms because he says, you're going to you're gonna get the, the Americans pissed off and they're going to overthrow you. So, you know, try and slow your role. And Allende didn't really listen to him, but... Interesting. <laughs> uh, just, just a bit of an uh, irony right there. Sure, um, yeah. But, yeah, so... Uh, so, 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 in, so, in terms of this this kind of tougher line, which which has been readopted, what, what does that mean? Oh, what are the the, the sanctions? Yeah, so, I mean, and and and, and, it, and is is it as as you say, is that then reinforcing the the Escanilla's kind of government government's hand to to kind of repress, keep on repressing people? Right. I mean, it's it's definitely not as bad as it used to be in the nineteen like the the the, the nadir was nineteen sixties um, with the forced labor camps, the UMAP camps, Unidades Militares de Ayuda a la Producción, which lasted from sixty five to sixty eight, um, and though that was kind of the nadir. In culture, the nadir was the, the gray five year five year period between nineteen seventy one and nineteen seventy six, the Quinquenio Gris, gray five years, um, but. Uh, the, but it still there, there still has a wax and wane to it. Um, Fidel Castro, for example, after Bush, uh, George Bush, the, the son, mm. in the early 2000s announced, uh, tr- started to move against Cuba 
in many ways. Um, the Cuban government responded by doing a roundup of dissidents in 2003 called the Primavera Negra by the opposition, the uh, Black Spring. Uh, I think it was 75 in total. Um, and uh, so, so there's, there's definitely some give and take. Um, under Obama, things uh, freed up. Um, but basically, before Obama, uh, 1961, Cu- uh, 1960, sorry, uh, Cuban-U.S. break relations. Uh, in the mid-70s, Cuba and U.S. almost come to an understanding. Uh, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger under uh, President Gerald Ford, tries to move forward with some kind of normalization, but that gets stymied because Cuba had just intervened in Angola, and news broke out about that. Uh, Jimmy Carter quasi-realist reestablishes diplomatic relations in the late 1970s through the establishment of interest sections, which are de facto embassies on technically Swiss soil in each country. Uh, but then, but that was the extent of U.S.-Cuba relations until Obama re-est- formally reestablished diplomatic relations in 2015. Um, and uh, he, he might have actually gone more further, Obama might have gone further in terms of normalization uh, as part of his presidency, but thanks to the Helms-Burton Act of 1996, uh, which Bill Clinton, then President Bill Clinton signed, mm. um, the ending of the embargo was actually no longer the prerogative of the executive. It is now it now requires an act of Congress. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah. So that that's an important bit of context here. Um, so so that was kind of the context of when Trump comes into office. There's a thaw, uh, but there's still a controlled thaw. He still worked. Obama still had to work within the context of the Helms-Burton Act, which really restricted his freedom of, of action. Um, and uh, and uh, also Cuba in the U.S., in addition to the increase of tourism, you know, American tourism just explodes in this in late Obama years, you also have an, uh, Cuba's then importing a good amount of food from actually Republican-controlled agro-export states in the U.S. as part of its actual political strategy to try and push the needle on normalization because the, 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 the real support for the embargo against Cuba is especially hard among, like in Florida, because sure. it's a swing state and it's Cuban Americans. Mm. But in in a lot of a lot of agro export, like um, Republicans, even uh, they they want they want Cuba to buy their pigs and their cows, and they don't. Their ideology is not red or or not red; it's green. <laughs> so uh, so they they have that relationship. Um, it's just that the Cuban Americans in Congress and the, and the importance of Florida kind of like prevented that. But it's it's slowly moving the needle anyway. That's the context into before Trump comes to office. Then with Trump, um, you basically have as far of a dismantling of the thaw as um, as you could get. Though he does stop short of completely reversing Obama in interesting ways. Okay. Um, so he uh, first of all he he removes most of the U.S. medical uh, sorry U.S. diplomatic personnel from Cuba because of the so-called sonic attacks thing. That's that's a really long story, but the long the short version of the sonic attacks thing is uh, it does not actually appear to be sonic attacks. It does not appear to be radiological attacks. Uh, it might be entirely psychosomatic attacks. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 I, I should just add for our listeners who who weren't familiar with this case, this was the uh, a good you know ten, fifteen, twenty or so I think U.S. and Canadian diplomats who were kind of reporting to hear the reporting hearing these kind of buzzing or really loud kind of noises while they were kind of you know asleep or overnight or whatever and there was a whole secret investigation to try and find out whether or not 
there was some sort of device being put in their rooms or they're being bugged and, and this was only only what two two three years ago right uh, yeah, I mean, the first attack supposedly began in late 2016 when Obama was president. Right. Uh, it came to light in summer of 2017 when Trump was in his first year of office. Um, the Canadians came out saying that they had, you know, they were withdrawing their personnel because of the attacks in 2018. Um, part of part of the problem with a really easy answer to what the hell that attack was is that the, the idea that the U.S. would lie about these attacks makes perfect sense to me it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> but the canadians have historically had not close economic and political ties to cuba there's a lot of canadian mm. tourism that goes to cuba uh, trade all the rest um so they have really no incentive especially under um the trudeau government of all governments mm. i mean it's not a like a hard right-wing government it's the trudeau government to fabricate these attacks um and last I heard, they still haven't come out with any kind of confirmation that they're psychosomatic. So I, I don't think anyone really knows what happened there. We may never know. But the long story short is um, the U.S. uses that as a, a basis to withdraw all but a skeleton crew from their embassy in and their consulate in Havana, and they shut down consular services. So you have to. So Cubans who want to come to the U.S. for any reason, family reunification, uh, academic trips, whatever need to go to uh, established third countries well, so like like guyana to... for example guyana uh, mexico so like they so if you want a visa to come to the u.s you have to first pay for a trip to this third country get a visa for that third country stay in that third country for as someone who's actually i was worked as a legal assistant and doing immigration law for a while uh consular processing can take for when you're in country uh at least two weeks perhaps as long as three it's, and that's without something going wrong. So, you know, you're, you're a Cuban working on a Cuban salary. Uh, how are you going to live in Mexico for basically a month? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, it's, that's definitely made it more difficult. Um, on top of that, you also have the U.S. is really aggressively going after Cuba's um, medical um, uh, uh, programs abroad, uh, publicly pressuring them, like Mike Pompeo, um, uh, Who's in the Trump administration was publicly tweeting that countries should shut down those programs in early this year, and that's just the public side. Like privately, we don't know what is being offered. Like we know that in the past uh, two years, uh, Ecuador, Brazil, um, Bolivia, and El Salvador have all shut down their programs. Yeah. Uh, the Brazilian program actually led to nine thousand Cuban doctors returning to Cuba. Of course, uh, and and we're, and we're talking about people who are working in rural Amazonian communities, places where your average Brazilian doctor probably doesn't doesn't want want to go. And and I and I think I think Brazil, or at least some states, some governors are, are now in talks to try and get some of those doctors back. because uh, that's a huge exactly. shortfall. Although one thing that's not clear to me about the stories about that is uh, I think what they're trying to do is not ask for new doctors from Cuba, but rather hire the doctors that are that stayed because about a thousand uh, to two thousand doctors didn't come back I when see. Cuba withdrew its medical personnel, and they were promised, or they were at least told that they would get a they would get rehired if they stayed because now they're free. It is no longer the tyranny that represses you. We will pay you your full wages. Mm. And then 
famously, a bunch of articles started coming out in the BBC and the Guardian about how uh, the, the doctors were not being allowed to practice and they were get, being forced to jump through hoops to get like new revalidations of their medical degrees, even though they've been practicing in Brazil with no problems for like months or years. Um, so I, I think that that's what's going on. Like I've seen a couple of articles refer to it that way, and it's not clear to me because because there's no, I, as far as I know, the Brazilian government, you know, the Bolsonaro government, uh, is not reaching out to Cuba for new doctors. I see. Um, okay. Though though I might be wrong, but it's just it's I've seen some articles like kind of contest that. Um, yeah. Uh, so there there have also been other sanctions. Um, it's, the U.S. has also been really going after um, Cuba's relationship with Venezuela. Venezuela, of course, provides a large amount of uh, Cuba's oil, um, so uh, not, which Cuba uses not just to power its own um, energy needs, but also it refines and then re-exports it uh, for, for cash. That's another source of cash. So they've really been going after it. Um, they've activated Title III of the Helms-Burton Act, which lets uh, people who are uh, those affected and their, and their, and their heirs by the nationalizations of the early revolutionary period to sue Cuba and sue countries uh, countries and co- companies that trade with Cuba uh, for sure. supposedly trading in stolen goods. So, so for example, the owners of the um, the owners of the port um, uh, one, uh, where a lot of cruise ships dock in in the port of Havana, that though the heirs of that are suing. Also, I think um, the oh um, I think. My, I keep forgetting if it's Meyer Lansky or Lucky Luciano, uh, the, the the gangster. The famous the famous mobster. Yeah, I think I think that, that, that that's yeah. Meyer Lansky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who who um who were like that's that's who Hyman Roth was based based on in, in the Godfather, uh, second Godfather film for those who okay. watch that. Um, so I believe the heirs, the the children or the grandchildren of Meyer Lansky are suing Cuba to get the uh to get um. Over, over properties he owned there. Wow. And I really, I, I really think that this is, the Title III was a, a mistake for a lot of folks because uh, everyone back then was very dirty. Um, everyone was mobbed up. So I'm not really sure they want to dig into who owned what and why in the 1950s. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, it could, could backfire. Well, yeah. well, I mean, um, so, 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 so you know, what you, what you described there is a huge kind of return of, of pressure. I mean, I'm conscious that we're, we're up against the time but i kind of wonder if it, you know in a sentence or two do you think all of that pressure is likely to produce the result that that, that the trump administration claims to to want or or or, or not you know do, does that increase the prospects of 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 a kind of you know of greater freedoms on the island um historically it hasn't that has been the historic yeah. lesson of the embargo yeah. it's part of why the obama administration uh did not support the embargo i mean no one who really studies cuba thinks the embargo is uh i regardless of being moral effective um mm-hmm. what it has done is just reaped an enormous amount of suffering and pain on everyday cubans and the cuban government has been basically intact uh, the key people who are supposedly being targeted have been entirely intact. The point of the embargo and all these sanctions is to make life so absolutely miserable for everyday people that they revolt. That's the that's the key. But if they don't revolt, then not only is it a cynical policy and an amoral policy, but it's a it's a it's a it's an unproductive policy. And what it does is just make people rally around like uh, it, it just it justifies the Cuban government's um, uh, restrictions of freedoms and its defensiveness. 
I mean, will it end up being affected this time? I don't know. I, things, there are some people who like to um, say that because it didn't work in the 1990s, which were much worse than it is now, like people who had been fat all their lives were rail thin. People were going temporarily blind from vitamin deficiencies. That was the 1990s for a lot of Cubans. Mm. Uh, and because that only resulted in one popular um, protest, uh, really massive popular protest, which was the Maleconazo, in 1994, and then that was dismantled uh, when the countermarch was uh, done by uh, Fidel Castro and his supporters, uh, who kind of talked the, the protesters off the ledge. Um, because they cite that precedent as saying, well, then nothing's going to happen this time. But I do think that circumstances are different, and no one really knows, because it's a different generation. Diaz-Canel is not Fidel Castro. He did not fight in the Sierra Maestra. He did not overthrow Batista. He does not, he does not have the... the the legitimacy that Fidel Castro had because of his record among his supporters. He's a new guy. Um, he doesn't have the same track record. So he can't either command the general populace or the bureaucracy or the military with the same authority that Fidel Castro did. And it's not clear to me that, uh, I mean, Fidel Castro risked things going wrong when he went in person. It's not clear to me that Diaz Canel is in a position to even try and play it the same way if something sure. were to go wrong. And young people, especially now that things have gotten better since the 1990s, and, and even old people, they're tired. They don't. They just want to live their lives, have kids, uh, you know, try and enjoy life a little bit. And they're not as ideologically committed as their forebears were. Um, so it's not clear to me that if Cuba goes through a second special period, that the government will be able to get through it unscathed. That there is going to be a lot of misery, a lot of abject misery. Of that I have no doubt, okay. but um, I'm not sure the, whether or not this ends up overthrowing, the, resulting in the overthrow of the government or something like that. I'm not sure, but I don't think anyone knows. Um, sure, things things are different. Well, well, that's probably a, a, a good note to end on. I, I I'd hope to ask you about a bit more about your time studying in, in in Havana and your your work as a historian. But what I will do is is direct our listeners towards uh, your own podcast, uh, which I think is called Origines and and is about Cuban history, uh, uh, and um, I'm really keen to, to tune into future episodes uh, of that. Um, but in the in the meantime, uh, Andres Pertiera, thanks very much for your for your time, and um, best of luck with your research uh, in the future. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you, Laurie and Andres, for that fascinating look at Cuba's medical diplomacy, a topic that I'm sure will carry enduring significance as this pandemic progresses. Next week, we will be featuring an interview with journalist and writer Vincent Bevins, where I discuss his new book on the United States' determination to quash communism around the world, particularly focusing, of course, on Latin America. In the meantime, we'd like to thank Diego Cumplido for our logo and La Motivante for our excellent music. More about their work can be found on our website, where you can also find all of the episodes of the podcast. And please do get in touch with us on social media at Miradas Pod, or if you'd like to share some longer reflections or perhaps even sponsor the podcast, we have an email address, info at miradaspodcast.com. Until next time, it's goodbye for myself and Laurie, and take care and stay safe.